to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter, and today we are speaking with Amber Rose Washington. Amber is the author of best-selling book, Hiding From Myself, My Complicated Rebirth Into Womanhood, and My Own Scan. She is also a songwriter, producer, voiceover artist, A&R, public speaker, and an advocate for the transgender community. She is also available at AmberRoseWashington.com where you can hear more about her podcast and upcoming projects. This interview, you guys, it was such uh, it was it was insightful, it was informative, and I feel like I could have Amber on for, for a number of episodes because it's been it was just a pleasure for me to have someone that's from the transgender community, which I wholeheartedly support. Amber was such a great storyteller. Uh, this interview went a little bit long, but it's because I wanted to get all of Amber's knowledge, all of her insight into her experiences. And she dropped so many gems just about faith and So if you're listening and you're somebody that is unfamiliar with the trans community or you don't know what it means to be trans, you don't have anybody that's trans in your life, this interview is for you. If you identify as trans or you do have people in your life that are in the trans community or you support the trans community, this interview is for you. So... Uh, I hope that that anybody that's listening that may identify with parts of her story will gain something from it. I I really think you will. Amber and I not only discuss her transgender journey, but we we also talk about her experience uh, with living in a transphobic society and, and being bullied and, again, her faith and just her entire history of her amazing career She's a powerful woman. You guys just, just get ready. Here you go. Amber, thank you so much for being here today. I want to cover what it means to overcome adversity, which I know that you speak a lot about this uh, yourself and you've got a lot of experience in this topic, but also you responded to a Facebook post. Uh, I was looking for people who wanted to talk about their own stories and suicide and LGBTQ plus issues and trans issues. And, and as a trans person, who better to talk about all of that, both of those things. Right. Um, So if you could first tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And uh, I am a transgender woman. I was, I was brought up in New York State in the Catskill region, which is where a lot of the comedians of the heyday got their start, you know, Joan Rivers, Jerry Seinfeld, all those types of people. And so it was a historically, uh, you know, entertainment centered place. So I immediately gravitated towards that from a very young age. I was I was probably about six years old when I started to get into music and everything else, which is what I'm going to segue into. And you know, it was around six years old that I started to love music, but it was around four years old that I started to realize that I wasn't like everyone else. And I, I it was really, um, the best word to use is it was a, a tragic recognition 
And it was an innate sense of myself at a very young age. And I wouldn't come to realize that, you know, everybody sort of has this innate sense of their self from a very young age. It's just they're painfully unaware of it because it's it stays in your subconscious. And that's because 99.3% of the world is born congruent, whereas 0.7% of the human population is born incongruent. Therefore, if your, your brain, your physical brain doesn't match your physical body, you have this painfully conscious, innate sense all the time, and it's, and it's poking at you each and every day. So I saw my sister, you know, growing her hair out, joining ballet class, doing, you know, all these wonderful things and crafts with mom. And she had Holly Hobby was like this little doll when we were growing up, everybody had it. And she had this beautiful canopy bed. And I had this stuffy little, you know, paneling laden room and I had to get crew cuts every four weeks. And it was sort of like nothing made sense to me. And I, I didn't understand culture. I didn't understand society. I didn't even understand the anatomy of the human being at that point. I didn't know what it was that was so different, but I knew I was not a boy. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, mommy and daddy were treating me differently than my sister. Thank you for, for sharing that. And and I want to go back because you used the word uh, congruency or, or incongruent. Yeah. And in the mental health field, we would call that like gender dysphoria. So, yeah, let me explain that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gender dysphoria, the reason I use congruent versus incongruent mm-hmm. is because I've been diagnosed because of the, the American Psychiatric Association, which comes out with the DSM, mm-hmm. you know, for iterations of that, I used to tell people, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on the air, but they, I would think the, the, the psychologists back in the day were flying by the seat of their pants. Yeah. They pulled it out of their ass. Right. Yes. So, so they didn't know what they were dealing with. So yeah. when I was 19 years old, I saw my first psychologist and it was like a hundred miles away from our house. I had to drive away because I could not stomach having somebody local start talking about me. Right. So I went a hundred miles away, got to the psychologist. He didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Right. I said, you know, since I was four years old and I started to tell him the whole story, the whole song and dance. And he says, yeah. Um, so, you know, we could try a few things and there's some medicines that I could put you on to see if, and I said, yeah, um, I'm paying you a hundred dollars an hour to teach you. I'm out of here. So I left I went to another one about four months later and it was oddly enough in the same town that he was in. This is a hundred miles away from my house, but yet I found two in the same town. This person understood, but they said, what you're referring to is called gender identity disorder. And that's what gender dysphoria used to be called. So in the 1980s, I was diagnosed with gender identity disorder. And I said, what is that? And they said, well, it's a mental health issue. It's a mental illness. I said, I don't have a mental illness, you know, cause you know, and I'm not putting anyone down that does because whoever has a mental illness, they can't help it, you know, but I certainly don't have one, right. That's right. not what this is. And cause by that time I was already in the music business, I was already successful. Right. And you know, if you're laden with, with, you know, a mental health concern, it sort of has a tragic effect on multiple facets of your life. And I didn't have any of that. The only thing I had was I was sad that 
I wasn't treated like my sister. And I was sad that here I was in a boy's uniform, you know, and the skin was a boy's uniform as well, metaphorically speaking. And I was attracted to boys, not girls, but I had to find myself dating girls because that's what society wanted from me. Incidentally, my first love was a boy and I went out with him at 13 years old till 14. And it was wonderful. It was the one time in my life where I actually felt what I think was, you know, the butterfly effect that we all talk about. So before we get to that part, because that is also very interesting um, for anybody listening, what Amber talked about in, in this difference of, uh, you know, congruency and, and gender dysphoria, we know those of us in the field and those of us not even in the field, <laughs> uh, if you've ever been misdiagnosed, not everything is a diagnosis, first of all. Yes. And, and and what I hear you saying is uh, for, for a lot of, of people, it's it was a knowing for you. Yes, it was a knowing. It's not, it's not an illness. You're, you're not crazy. You're not dysfunctional. You're not any of that stuff disordered. It was a knowing. This is who I am. Absolutely. And the world just couldn't get up to speed with it. I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's true. And, and when I looked it up, because I knew the DSM frontwards, backwards, upside down, and, and, you know, make anagrams out of it, and I could still figure it out. It was... It was interesting because they equated the gender identity disorder to anxiety disorder and depression. Well, you know, if you look at those, those two in particular, there's about 66 million Americans that suffer from those two alone. So when people like to pick on transgender people and say, oh, you have a mental illness, they're picking on about 66 million Americans that suffer from anxiety or, or depression. And that's a sad thing to do to a human being because, you know, quite frankly, there's probably been a time in most people's life where they've actually encountered, you know, facets of each of those. And it's, it's a very interesting thing that when they tried to, I, I, I always say tried to, because they, they still haven't gotten it right. Even, even with what they've done recently that I'll talk about, but they changed it to gender dysphoria at, shortly after that. And I found that that was just as evil as, as the other one, because it was still known as a mental health diagnosis, but they had cuter words, gender dysphoria, mm -hmm. you're dysphoric, you know? Yep. And I'm like, okay, listen, guys, <laughs> I, I, I will admit I am dysphoric. It, it bothers me that I wake up and knowing that, you know, my, my body is not the way, it didn't transform the way all my girlfriends did. And that bothers me a lot. Yes, that is true. I'm missing all of the rites of passage that all my girlfriends are going through. Mm -hmm. Up until 11 years old, I thought I could get pregnant. Well, there was no internet back then, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I was a little too old to think that could still happen, but you know, a girl can dream. So I was, I was thinking that could still happen. So even with gender dysphoria, which is really a spectrum from zero to a hundred. So gender dysphoria really sh is, is a descriptor for how much how much this inc this incongruency really affects your life. Mm -hmm. Does it affect your life a little bit, zero? Or does it really make your life miserable and, and un intolerable, which is 100? And it could be anywhere in between those. It's a spectrum. Yeah. And I didn't, have, I didn't have really any of that. I had, I had a lot of um, 
50% sort of syndrome, I called it, where I knew that it was there, it was bothering me every day, and I didn't know what my path was to get from the skin I was in that I totally didn't feel comfortable in to the skin I want it to be in that I would feel comfortable in. I didn't know how to do that. And for years, I was trying to skip along with the psychologists that were saying all the wrong things, except for the one guy that I went to who said, sounds like you're a candidate for HRT. I said, that's interesting you say that because I've been self-medicating for about a year. Mm -hmm. And he goes, what do tell? And I said, well, there's a pharmacy over in the UK where I've been getting prescription estrogen and another, um, they have their own version of something called spironolactone. Spironolactone is, is like a, a diuretic. It's a, it's a drug that we use for high blood pressure, congestive heart failure, but it has wow. the, the fancy side effect of getting rid of all testosterone in the body, right? So Hold up a minute. So you were... <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, joy, this is wonderful. So I think it was called Ciperone or something. I, I forgot what it was called. And everybody that's trans listening is going to say, oh, girl, you got that wrong. But, you know, I don't remember the UK version of it, but that's what I was on. And it was really, basically, it did the same thing as spironolactone. And that's what, you know, trans women do. We, we want to get rid of the testosterone. And I, I coined a phrase a while back called, I'm a testosterone survivor. Yeah. And I really am. And once, once the testosterone started to leave my body, which was super quick, mm-hmm. I started to feel so much better. Wow. It's amazing how, how that toxic chemical really can put a person down. And unless you've experienced it for yourself, you just don't have a framework of understanding. So what do people do usually when they don't understand something? They put something into mythology or the ethereal realm. You know, God did this or God doesn't make mistakes. That's the biggest thing I always hear, right? And, or, or, or worse yet, they'll, they'll say, you know, you're an abomination to God, right? <laughs> it's just... Amber, you're getting so far ahead. Like, I'm sorry. It's like, just... that's one of my questions. <laughs> we have to cover that part. Okay. We have to cover this whole God. We're yeah. going to get to that. I hear you, girl. Let's go. <laughs> so, okay. So let's go back. So, so your earliest awareness, your, uh, you guys, Amber, has done so much in her career, in her life. Just Google her, okay? Because she's all over the place. She's in places you have no idea. (laughs) So Google her, go to her website, listen to her interviews. We're going to provide all of that at the end. But you're from listening to your one of your other interviews, you talked about your earliest awareness being at four years old, praying with your mom. Yeah. And can you describe for listeners that, that just don't understand what it means to be incongruent, what it means to feel like you're another gender, okay? What were some of the early physical, mental, emotional signs that you recall growing up? Before that fateful night when we were praying, some of the signs were, you know, I viewed myself, you know, from a very young age, my sister and I are 18 months apart. So we obviously played with each other every single day. And Whenever mom would do something with us, she would do something different with my sister. My sister had these pretty dresses that she could wear and she used to do her hair up. And I was always watching like a hawk, like, what's wrong with me? Why, why can't I have my hair up? You know, 
Colleen loved that as a little girl. She just loved that mom would play with her hair and do these things and, you know, dress up her room with, with these dolls and in this beautiful canopy bed and all these things that were, and I hate to say it because it sounds stereotypical, but all of these things that, that typically were associated with being a girl. And I wanted to, I, I, definitely wanted to do the things my sister was doing, but I just was not permitted to do that. Mm -hmm. I was told to go outside with the boys and play in the mud. And, you know, it just wasn't working out for me. So there was a lot of psychological stuff that was affecting me. The boys wanted to talk about, even at a very young age, you know, even at four years old, we, I lived on a neighborhood where there was like 16 of us. It was crazy. We lived in a beautiful neighborhood where there were so many kids and from four years old on, we played with them. And the boys kind of at a very young age wanted to play superheroes or they wanted to play war. And remember that they would get sticks and pretend they were guns and want to play war. I just, I just didn't grab, I couldn't grapple with all of that. I didn't understand why they wanted to do that. Why we couldn't just do something else or play house like the girls were doing. And it, it was very frustrating for me. So if that's any indication of what it's like, that's what led me to that fateful night when, you know, I was brought up Catholic and we would say our prayers by the bed every night. And I would say the Lord's prayer with my mom mm -hmm. and we would kneel. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional because this part you know, affects me. What? I'm sitting, I'm, I'm kneeling by the bed with her and I said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Mm -hmm. And I look at my mom and she goes, that's very good, honey. Now go ahead and let's say, God bless my mommy. And I would do that. God bless my daddy, my sister, my friends, my cousins, and my relatives. Now say something to God yourself. Make something up and just mm -hmm. talk to God. And I thought that was sweet of her to, mm -hmm. to do that. And I said, I don't know what to say. And she says, anything you want. So I leaned over, put my hands up to my head. And I said, God, please fix me by morning. Yeah. And she goes, oh, honey, what's the matter? Are you sick? And she puts her hand to my forehead and I said, no, I'm not sick. And she said, well, what, why, why would you say that? Mm -hmm. And it took me a few minutes and I started crying. Mm -hmm. And that's what gets me choked up because mom was so beautiful. Um, I said, am I a boy and a girl? Am I both? And my mom goes, oh, honey, no. You're just my handsome little boy. And, and why would you say that? And as she's sort of saying, everything became like, you've seen the peanuts with Charlie Brown yeah. mom's voice transformed from, Oh honey, what, you know, you're just my handsome little boy. Why would you want, 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 want? It would sort of transform into that voice. Cause I wasn't listening anymore because I was so devastated that she said, no, you're just my handsome little boy. Right. I didn't expect that. Honest to God. I, I expected her to say, listen, honey, when you were born, something happened and we have to do things a little different with you, but you're going to be fine. And, and I was expecting a completely different answer, quite honestly. That's how crazy different it is, you know, for me. And it wasn't until 20 years later when I saw a neurologist that I, they explained what happens to the cortical region of people that are trans. And that was just an amazing epiphany for me, you know, because that night was, was something that shaped my entire future with my mom because from that moment on, she knew I was suffering from something. And she was a nurse, mm -hmm. but she didn't know what. She she couldn't put her finger on it. And she was trying her best, her damnedest to understand. But she thought it was a phase. She, mm -hmm. So she said, 
listen, little kids have trouble sometimes. When, when you're little, the world is so confusing. And it's okay to be confused sometimes. And this, remember, this is the 1970s, early 70s at that. And she says, I want you to go to sleep. And I want you to know that you're going to wake up refreshed and you're going to feel wonderful. This phase will go away. It may not go away tomorrow. It may not even go away this week, but it's going to go away, honey. I promise. All right. Do you trust me? I said, yes. And, you know, at four years old, the only two people you trust is your mommy and your daddy. Right. right. So when mommy says you're going to be okay, God damn it, you're going to be okay. Fine. That's right. Yeah. So I took that to heart and I, I fell asleep knowing in my heart that my mom just protected me and I'm going to be okay. But what would happen over the next week, two weeks, month, months, year, it got worse and worse. So that's the interesting thing about gender dysphoria, Mm -hmm. incongruity, whatever we want to call it, Mm -hmm. uh, because there was no nomenclature for it back then. The only two words that were used back in that day were transvestite or transsexual, both of which didn't match what I was experiencing. So when, when I look back, I say, wow, my mom really tried her best to protect me. And I love her so much. And she had her moments where she, would watch TV and TV would sort of put these talk shows on that would put us in a bad light. Cause let's face it for 115 years, the movie industry did transgender people absolutely no service at all. We were the brunt of the jokes. We were the man in the dress. We were, you know, to be humiliated and mocked. We were circus freaks. Right. So, you know, if you move past what my mom had said that evening, she sort of had trouble and, she, it was sort of hot and cold with her. Mm-hmm. At times she would understand and protect me. At other times she would be frustrated. Like, why can't you just get over this already? You know? And it was frustrating for her. And it was frustrating to watch because it didn't just affect me. It affected her. And right. she tried to keep it quiet because she didn't want everybody to know and tease me and everything. Cause that's the last thing she wanted for me. Mm-hmm. Cause and, and I remember this one evening I was laying in bed crying and she says, honey, is it, is it the problem? I said, yeah. She goes, what can I do for you, sweetheart? There's gotta be something. And it was a cold winter's night. And I remember, I don't know. I just want to, can, can I, can I wear one of my sister's nightgowns like she does? And I didn't really understand, you know, what that meant or anything, but she didn't even bat an eyelash. She turns around to my dad who was tucking my sister in and says, Bobby, I need one of Colleen's nightgowns. And my name at birth was Eddie, right? Uh-huh. Edward Ambrose Washington, such an English sounding you know, name. Uh-huh. And, she, and she goes, can you bring in one of Colleen's nightgowns for Eddie? Cause, cause um, we have to get, we have to get this, this stuff put in the wash because the night clothes here, the pajamas are all messed up. And so my dad brings it in. He says, Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. He, he tosses it onto the bed towards me, looks at me and he winks at me. He goes, don't make this a habit. Okay. Ah, he knew he, he was like, Oh my God. So I was mortified a little bit. And I was like, Oh, and I was still young. Right. I was just a little kid, maybe in first grade. And, and I was like, Oh God. So mom puts it over my head. She goes, that's better, right? I said, yeah. She goes, good. She gives me a kiss on my forehead. She goes, you just go to sleep, sweetheart. Okay, I love you. And yeah. and my dad didn't know. 
I grew up thinking my dad knew and just avoided. He had no idea. He had no idea what was going on. Mom kept it a secret from him because guys back then were sort of manly men, unemotional. I'm the breadwinner of the family. And we don't talk about that. Yeah. So Amber, can we just pause there? Because all through since four years old, it was an interesting dynamic because that conversation we had at four years old was a one-time conversation. Okay. It didn't happen over and over again. She, she was just like most most people in the seventies. They practiced passive aggressive behavior, you know, <laughs> and and she, you know, we learned it from a very young age, right? Even in public speaking, you know, we we learned to be passive aggressive. Picture your audience in their underwear. Like, what creep ever came up with that one, right? Right. Or look at the wall behind the the people, and they'll think you're still looking at them. So that's passive aggressive. My mom decided early on that if I leave it alone, it'll go away. Mm -hmm. Then by the time I was prepubescent, the conversations started off, started up in a fury. So there's one day I was, the only way I can describe my relationship with my mom with this is experience and and actual situational things Mm -hmm. because there were so few of them. We were sitting and watching TV one morning when I was homesick from school with it with an earache. All right. So I got earaches all the time because I went deaf by the time I was five years old and I lost my hearing for almost a year and a couple of operations in New York city later. And I could hear again. It was, it was magical, but I still got these crazy earaches because my eustachian tubes were malformed. And so here I was in the living room. I had this little hot bottle under my ear and I'm watching the TV. And she used to watch a show called Phil Donahue. Mm-hmm. And it was a talk show in the seventies and eighties and whatnot, very popular, you know, very close in, 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 in its, in its content to what Oprah Winfrey sort of does today. Absolutely. I remember that show. Yeah. So he had a guest on her name was Caroline Cossie, otherwise known, otherwise known as Tula. Now, for the audience, most of you may not immediately know this person, but you will once I, I say who this person was. She was an English woman. She was from the UK. She was super tall. She was a model. She was six foot tall. And she was a model. She was one of the Bond girls. She was in For Your Eyes Only. So if you look up For Your Eyes Only with Roger Moore, there's a Bond girl in there, and she's the beautiful Bond girl in that movie. And incidentally, a year later, she did a, pre- a Playboy spread because she's so gorgeous. So I was so smitten by her. But the reason I was smitten by her and what your audience is about to learn is that she was the first transgender person to have a role in a movie like that, a leading role in a movie, and have a Playboy spread at the same time. And I remember my face got flush. My heart was beating a million miles an hour. And I'm looking over towards mom like, oh God, I hope mom doesn't see how excited I am watching this. And mom looks over at me because mom ha- moms have eyes all over their head. They're like a spider. <laughs> they have a million eyes. And she says, honey, I know you're watching this. Take it all in. I just want you to take it all in. And I want to learn too. So let's watch it together. And we did. That's exactly what we did. We watched it together. And it was such a wonderful experience because it was the first time in my life I actually said, oh, my God, there's somebody else like me in this world. I'm not alone. There's someone else that is exactly like me. I I identify with this person, you know. Right. And so so just um, 
because I want you to tell more about that. So that is the importance when we talk about the importance of representation. Yes. Specifically in media, that, you know, Bond girl, so to speak, what she became, you know, this model, this really beautiful woman, because she paved the way, right, for so many, and because she was represented on mainstream TV at that time, she, she basically said to you, look. <laughs> Yeah. This is what you can become. <laughs> yeah. Right. But that was, no, that's brilliant the way you just said that. You said it perfectly. In fact, it, it was the first time that I heard this word. And, and I, I mentioned it earlier that it didn't really represent me. But the first time in my life I ever heard the word was at 10 years old. And it was called transsexual because Phil uh-huh. Donahue said this transsexual from the UK. And she was a transsexual. Okay. Right, you know, because she she went through what we now call GCS, which is uh-huh. vaginoplasty. She went through the whole process of transition, hormones, everything, so that she could be congruent, as as uh-huh. we say. And I was like, wow, transsexual. That's an interesting word. We I went through mom and dad's encyclopedias, couldn't find the word. I went through the dictionary, couldn't find the word. Then, as I was putting one of the, it was like God wanted me to find this, like. It's this is this strange. I put the the encyclopedia back, and this little black book falls behind it. So I grab back there and I pick it up, and it says, "Everything you ever wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask." I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> I think I hit something here. I went through that whole book. Oh, Tasha, I went through the whole book. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Then in the last few pages of the book, transsexual you know, hormone replacement therapy, mm-hmm. you know, um, sex change. They use the word sex change all the time back then, even though, you know, it, it was also morphed as, you know, sexual reassignment surgery. They, they use the word sex change. And then they said, you know, Bangkok, Thailand, Bangkok, Thailand, that's where you need to go. That's the magical wizard of Oz is in Bangkok, Thailand, right? So I would go to the library and learn everything. I had a, I had a PhD in endocrinology by the time I was 15, I would go to the public library. Mom and dad would say, go play baseball with the boys. And I would go, okay. I'd go up to my room. I'd get my little library card and I'd sneak one mile down downtown. I'd walk the entire mile to the public library and read every book I could on the endocrine system, which I couldn't even say the word back then. And, and then I found out, okay, librarian, how does somebody get to Bangkok, Thailand? She goes, sweetie, why would you ever want to go to Bangkok, Thailand? I said, it's for a school project. <laughs> and she goes, Oh, there's books over there. So I started reading books on, 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 on Thailand and the culture and everything else. I found out about the Kahui. That was an interesting grab for me because the Kahui was a two spirit type of person. We call Kahui in, in English, lady boy. Right. Oh my goodness. Mm. So Kahui, which is also translated as she male, which mm-hmm. is really you know, one thing and, and lady boy and, and, you know, this whole idea of, of being transgender or two spirit, they're revered over there. Mm-hmm. So I started digging further into that and I cross-referenced Kahui mm-hmm. with something called the two spirit and the two spirit was in the North America. It was all over the Americas, right? North, central and South America mm-hmm. and the two spirit indigenous Indian culture and, and whatnot they also revered this two-spirit man and so the male and fem- female, the, the, you know, the masculine and the feminine. Then 
cross-reference that to something called the shaman in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. There was something called the shaman. So I started to learn at a very young age, you know, 40 years before the conversation started here in America, that there are more than two genders. Yes. And the United States is so freaking behind. (laughs) And you know, what's funny is that we weren't because in the 18th century, 18th century, we came over here, Western civilization and, and the colonialists of America decided to make everything binary. They knew about multiple genders. Absolutely. Blowing my mind right now, Amber. Go ahead. They absolutely <laughs> knew about multiple genders, but they said it's just gonna it's gonna perpetuate the ideology of homosexuality and whatnot. By the way, homosexuality wasn't really a word until the 1940s. Right. They had a different term for it then. They and it was it was it was rather derogatory. Right. And, and that's why I correct people with the Bible, you know, that say yes. it says homosexual. No, it doesn't say homosexual because that wasn't even a word until the 19, late 1940s, you know? So, um, so yeah. So I hope that answered your question. You know, Amber, you're amazing. I'm just snapping my fingers. Like, you know, <laughs> like, like I'm in a poetry uh, reading or something. People don't know what they don't know. You know, they, <laughs> they like to spout out things that they learned in, in the last 30 years, which is their only existence on the planet. And think yeah. that's the way it always was. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that somebody purposely created the ideology of, of two genders and, Gender has always been a spectrum. And the way I explain it to people to help them learn is, have you ever seen a very, very uber masculine man, like a football player? Let's take a football player or a boxer, mm-hmm. right? Super filled with testosterone, sort of like the manliest man you can think of. And then on the other side of the ladder, you sort of have the, I don't know, what do you call him? Quagmire. You have the you have the, the sort of effeminate man, the, the guy that... Right. That's, that's very laid back, non-confrontational, you know, even has a sing-song voice, doesn't have, I am a monotone man. It has, you know, the sing-song voice, everything sort of effeminate, but still a man, nonetheless. You know, this guy has kids and he tries to do the right thing as a man and this and that and the other thing, but he's on the opposite side of this uber-masculine, testosterone-ridden guy, right? So... Well, gee whiz, that goes from a spectrum from zero to 100 real freaking quick, doesn't it? Right. Same thing with female. Mm-hmm. On the female side, there's a lot of things that we used to call tomboys versus the very effeminate. You know, my sister was effeminate, you know. She, she loved girly things. And, you know, and then there were girls on the block that were kind of tomboyish, right? Mm-hmm. So I got to see this, and I paid close attention. People that are transgender and girls, boys, you know, all transgender people – you know, chime in uh, on the comments, you know, you know, for a fact that we pay attention to details that most people don't. And it's true. We pay attention to these things because it affects our life each and every day. Sure. So I want to talk about, you know, a lot of now over the last few years, um, maybe 10 years or so, maybe less, there's a lot of talk about trans um, teenagers, trans children, suicide rates, bullying, um, family uh, dysfunction, family, uh, even I would say emotional abuse, parental abandonment, all of these kind of things tied into what trans children and teens go through. Yeah. Um, Did you at any point in your life experience kind of feeling 
not even feeling, obviously there was a feeling of, of being othered, but, but, but being bullied, other people having this awareness that there was something about you or that you were different or any kind of stuff like that. Every single year of my childhood. In fact, what's weird, and, and this is how I equate this, because I, I really hope someday some of my old friends actually listen to some of these or, you know, actually get, get around to listening to some of these. They'll learn something. Because the first people that'll say, oh, that never happened. Mm-hmm. She's lying. That never happened. Are the same people that say that, you know, toxic masculinity doesn't exist or white privilege doesn't exist. Right. Or, they're the first people to say that stuff. And the reality is, is I had a lot of friends that would pick on me, bully me, mm-hmm. um, sometimes beat the snot out of me because I was, I was soft, right? I was way different than they were. And then they, they would do these things to me and say, but I'm your friend, right? We're friends, right? And, and you know, at that young age, I was so vulnerable. I would be like, yeah, yeah, we're friends. You know, I, what do you say to that? They, they were, you know, eight inches taller than me. You know, they, they could push me to the ground in a, in a heartbeat. They would, you know, they would punch at me. There was, they, there was kids on the block that would take turns doing this. Yeah. Over and over. They didn't realize that I would walk home crying. They didn't realize that in the middle of a baseball game we were playing that I sucked at. <laughs> and, and, and I would see the girls walk into the, the back garage at our house. We had a huge garage that used to be a veterinarian clinic. And they used to play house in there. And I would watch the girls sneak into the garage. And I would throw the bat down and say, oh, my mom's calling me. I got to go, guys. And I would leave the game right in the middle of the game. Just run down there. And I would have this enormous sense of relief when I would walk into the garage and say, can I play house? And they would go, yeah. But here's the bad part. Even the girls, even though they were nicer, they would say, okay, you could be Michelle's husband. So you got to be the husband. And I said, I don't want to be the husband. Why do I have to be the husband? Because you're a boy. You're a boy. You know, they weren't doing it purposely. They just, right. yeah. this is what they saw. And, and that's, that's the way it was. And I was like, but I'm not, but you are. And so, you know, bullying was a big thing for me in school mm-hmm. and it went all through my school years, all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. And when you think about bullying and you think about transgender people, you know, we constitute, like I said, 0.07, of the human population, which is about 1.6 million adults over the age of 18. We don't really have an accurate number for 18 and under because- Sure, yeah. it's not reported. Because, right? So, but, you know, we have the highest suicide rate yeah. and this highest suicide ideation rate. Those are two different rates, by the way. Ideation yeah. versus, you know, suicidal. Completion, right? right? Yes, mm-hmm. are two different things. Well, by the age of 13, I had that boyfriend I told you about earlier. By the age of 14, he beat me up in the middle of school in front of the entire cafeteria. And I didn't know why. I just laid there going, why did he just do this? And I, I was freaked out. And I went home that night and I sort of locked myself in my bedroom. I had my music, of course, but I, would, I started reclusing, you know, to myself and it got worse and worse over the next coming months. And now we're getting into winter. Mm-hmm. And it was about January. I, I, I want to say, I'm probably getting this wrong, but it was around January when when I grabbed all the pills, you know, trigger alert, um, trigger alert. 
I grabbed all the pills out of the bathroom. Now, honey, they could have been diuretics, right? I <laughs> you were going to take something that day to get out of pain. I yeah, all I was going to do was shit the bed that night. <laughs> but, you know, the reality was, you know, this represented something to me. And I grabbed every pill. And I knew mom had high blood pressure. So I knew there was a lot of, like, funky stuff in there. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed it, laid it out on the bed, you know, like 20 different pillowcases. It was crazy. And I hear this. I'm coming in. And it was my dad. My dad walks in my room. I cover all the pills up with the blanket on my bed. And he looks at me and he says, it's going to be 20 below zero tonight. We got to get firewood out of the garage. So I need you to get outside and help me bring some firewood in right now. Cause it's going to get super cold real soon. So I'll meet you downstairs in a few minutes. Okay. So hop to it. And he closes the door at that moment. I couldn't think about what I was about to do anymore because I was about to put that first pill in my mouth and my dad walked in. So to me, at that age, God intervened. I later grew up to think that it was either God or the universe or whatever. Yeah. So even as I listened to you, um, I had this image of that moment. And somewhere in the universe, every person that has ever identified as trans, every person that was ever beaten, bullied, uh, killed, for their sexuality or, 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 you know, gender, whatever, you know, whatever they were going through, yeah. they were in the LGBTQ plus community yeah. and they suffered in any way. I just imagine them saying no Amber, yeah. <laughs> not today. Not today You've got work to do. You have got so much work to do. This isn't it. Let, let's send, let's send dad in there to get, no, no, no. I don't know. That's just the image I got. I have to say amen to that. I'm, 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 I'm not afraid to say it. I'm religiously agnostic at this point, but I'm extremely uh-huh. spiritual, right? Uh-huh. And we can talk about that if you want. But, uh-huh. you know, I think my dad really did intervene. You know, there was a synchronicity happening and, and my dad did intervene at just the right time and saved my life from that god-awful moment in my life that was absolutely tragic. And it took me a while to get over what I had just contemplated there and almost carried out. And it carried on through my life as as a, a, both a humbling experience, a tragically scary experience, and something that gave me empathy because I knew other people that had committed suicide. Right. I knew that there were a lot of murders of transgender people out in, in society, of which the most marginalized, most dangerous part of our population for, for, for this sort of thing, for homicide, is unfortunately Black transgender women. And it's so terrifyingly bad. There's something tragically going on that there's there's targeting actually happening, and it's it's something that we're all trying to get behind and and and, and hopefully remedy. And my platform can only go so far. So what I'm doing is I'm advocating for children. Mm-hmm. Now we have 20 states where it's we have 24 states where it's still legal to have a conversion camp. Yeah. Send people to conversion therapy. Hold on. Did you just say there's 24 states? There's still still 24 states still allowing this shit to happen. Yeah. Oh, wow. Now there are 20 states hopping on the bandwagon again, you know, that again, uh, you have Arkansas, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, these states that are passing laws banning puberty blockers. The entire damn reason we have so many problems as adults that we have stereotypes happening 
Yes. It's because we went through puberty the wrong way. Right. Transgender people do not want to go through puberty the wrong way. And what they did is they took anecdotal evidence from an 80-year-old man who said, I detransitioned because, you know, transgenderism is a phase. And they took that instead of the countless millions of people that transition and never detransition. You know, humans are humans. Some humans make mistakes. Some humans misdiagnose themselves. Some doctors misdiagnose. Shit happens, right? We know that. Yep. But that's the exception, not the rule. Mm-hmm. For the vast, overwhelming majority of trans people, we know exactly what's going on and what we don't want to go on. And puberty blockers doesn't do anything. In fact, puberty blockers, what most Americans don't know, because again, that we don't read, mm-hmm. is that puberty blockers have been around for 42 years. 42 years! And in the past 11 years, we've been making it more accessible to doctors for gender-affirming care for 11 years, and yet now it becomes an issue. Why? Because we had an orange turd for a president (laughs) that actually actually, incited these people and made it a non-issue into an issue. And it's tragic because these children are going to go through the wrong puberty and spend the rest of their natural life trying to undo that mess. Look at Kim Petras. Ask everybody. Look up the name Kim Petras, P-E-T-R-A-S. Look up two videos in particular, Heart to Break, and the the other song is um, Icy, I-C-Y. Look up those two and watch her sing, listen to her sing, and you will see she is the poster child for what happens to us when we get to go through puberty correctly the first time. She is... One, she's not a hundred percent girl. She's a thousand percent woman, and her voice is better in some cases than Ariana Grande and some of the other ones. I mean, her voice is just spectacular, and everything everything turned out wonderful for her because she was able to transition at a much younger age. Now, puberty blockers don't allow you to transition. They keep you androgynous for a few years longer while we try to figure out whatever we're going to do. Mm-hmm. So there's this, there's this mythology floating around that we're trying to give people sex changes when they're children. That does not happen. I just want to reiterate that. That does not happen. We wouldn't do that because hormones have to have time to do their work first, right? You know, a lot of transgender women are frustrated and go, I'm going to get a boob job next week. Are you on hormone therapy? No. Oh, girl, don't do that. You're going to screw everything up. You need to be on hormone therapy for at least two years. Let something start happening. Then go ahead and augment them if you need to. Because a lot of trans girls do need to augment. Because, uh, uh, you know, if you go through puberty the wrong way, your chest cavity widens. Your bone structure thickens. Your muscle mass changes in certain areas of your body. Your voice changes. You get hair all over the place that takes years to get rid of through painful electrolysis. Now, a lot of women have had electrolysis, but if you're a trans woman having electrolysis, you know, take that and magnify it by a hundredfold. It's way worse because your hair follicles are thicker because you went through the wrong puberty. So it's more painful. And so we go through all of this pain. Why? Why would we want to go through this pain? Well, because you're all mental. No, we're not mental. We found out that the cortical region of the brain, which defines that innate sense of who we are in the world, that's what the cortical region does. It tells us who we are in the world. We're a human being and that I'm a, I'm a female or I'm a male. You know, 
these are the, that's the center of the brain where a lot of that stuff happens. And in a female, a natal female, it's in a natal male, it's very thin. And what they've done through the studies is they've shown that transgender people have the same cortical region or cortex as the gender they, they identify with. So all I hear you saying right now is if you are transgender, be patient with the process. Yeah. <laughs> Don't rush it. <laughs> if yeah, you no. rush it, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to cause more problems. And if you don't know about what it means to to be transgender and you don't know what they go through, do your own research because this is not a choice. No, and and that's the problem because Google, if you Google it, you're going to get a lot of people like Ben Shapiro. Yes. Um, You're going to get a lot of these people that sort of say all these horrible things that, you know, if I I am now considered a public figure, Mm -hmm. so I called him out. And I, I said, I will, honey, I will argue with, everyone's afraid of you. I will argue with you in the snap of a finger. I can break down every argument you've ever said on any show you've ever said, because you're an up and coming, you know, uh, person in, in, in the political spectrum, it, because you're such a good arguer. He really is a good arguer. He puts people where he was able to shut people up. But I know how to deal with people like him. And he's everything he's ever said about transgender people is absolutely incorrect. You know, that's the way our world seems to work, though, you know, with this incorrectness. And it all stemmed from with me because you may not know this, but I've had three exorcisms tr- attempted on me. Three exorcisms attempted because of religion. You know? Hold on, you're now now you're in my brain. You're something intuitive just happened because I was just getting ready to say I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at the top and I said, Oh my goodness, we haven't even talked about her faith journey and yeah and, and any possible religious trauma associated with that. And so can you please talk to us about what that journey? I know that you are you know you're agnostic now. Yeah. But you know, as it relates to God prior to, um, did you ever, I want to hear about the exorcisms, but also did you ever feel, sometimes I grew up in church and I know that I grew up a lot of times feeling like I didn't belong, like God didn't approve, like I was just this sinful, wrong person, born wrong. (laughs) And did you ever go through that at any point? Yes. And I point you back to, I I listened to your podcasts, Uh you know, and you had a wonderful interview with somebody named Patrick Monet. He's amazing. Oh my God. That was a good interview because he he spoke about his interaction with the church very eloquently. And I can't say it any better than he did. And it was, I was going through the motions. I knew I didn't fit in because my parents were great and I was going to church with them, but it was my, my aunt especially uh, in Pennsylvania, and a few of them, in fact, that were very racist, were very, and and God bless their hearts, they just didn't know any better. And they were also very homophobic, transphobic, all these sorts of things, even though they weren't all words back then. Mm -hmm. And I would go to church and and feel like a lot of this is, is just a bunch of people that don't read the Bible, right? 73% of all Catholics don't read the Bible, right? And, you know, if you ask, if you ask these people, okay, who are the first people on the planet? I'll even ask you, what the hell? Let's just have some fun here. Who are the first two people on the planet that we know of? 
that we were taught. We're taught Adam and Eve. But it was really. I don't know. Who was it really? Adam and Lilith. Wait a minute. Hold on. Tell me more. Lilith is from the, the, it predates the Old Testament in the old Jewish texts. Mm -hmm. Lilith was Adam's first wife. Okay. They purposely left her out of the Bible because she has become the incarnation of what we now call a succubus. A succubus is a, sort of a demonic force that takes advantage of men. Whereas an incubus is, you know, a demonic force that takes advantage of women, right? In, in spiritual realms. So when you look at that, you know, the Bible itself has, has had several iterations going predating the Codex Sinaiticus, which was really only halfway complete. But the, the Bible is nothing more than a compilation of authors and writings that they, they call scripture and compiled into this book that we later called the Bible, like the Old Testament. And you could read the Old Testament, and you have books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Judges and Kings. Those were some of the most vile, evil chapters written in any, any, spirit, any religious text. And I'm talking about, you're talking to a woman that's read the Quran, the translated Quran, the old Jewish texts. I've read the Codex Sinaiticus. I've read the Old Testament. I've read the King James Version of the New Testament. I've read the NIV Version of the New Testament. I've read the New Living Testament. I, I, I've read Hinduism. I, I've read all of these different things because I know there's 4,200 religions. Mm -hmm. Six of them have the lion's share, mm -hmm. but there's 4,200 religions on the, on the planet Earth. And then I found something very interesting. There's 33,000 different denominations of Christianity. 33,000. But, but yet they have their shit together and everything's right, right. right. So then why is there 33,000? So God is a yeah. trickster. He was a riddle person, right? He, he wanted to purposely confuse us, right? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. You're misunderstanding the Bible. And, and I have to say to you, and, and I'm, I'm being a caricature of someone that told me this once. You have to understand the King James version of the Bible is actually the accurate one. Right. One the Catholics use. Oh my God. It, no, no, no. And I'm like, oh really? So what, what's so great? Well, you have to understand that's the true word of God that God wanted. It's the instruction manual for all humanity. And I said, whoa, stop right there. If it's really the true instruction manual for all humanity, can I ask you a question? Sure. Why in 325 AD, when Constantine was in power, did he call together the first council of Nicaea, calling together 200 theologians to decide, keyword, what was going to make it to the final version of what we now call the Bible, what books were going to make it in, and which ones they were not going to make the cut, which is why we end up with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? We ended up with that. We, didn't, we don't have the book of Thomas, right? Because they decided to keep that out. We don't have the book of Mary. All these, right. all these things are missing out of the Bible because in 325 AD, that's what they decided to do. So are you telling me that human beings are purposely editing the word of God? Because that's what, you know, you have no, you've sort of painted yourself into a corner here. Because if, if that happened, and we all know that it did, it's a historical fact. So what's going on here? Are we so pompous as to edit God's word since you said God wrote all this? You know, we're editing God's word. Secondly, why do we only hear about fig trees, palm trees, the Red Sea, 
a lot of desert, right? And it's about a 450 square mile plot of, of sand, really. Why is it that's all we hear about? Well, that's because that's where these middle-aged Middle Eastern men grew up. That's where they, that's the world they knew and understood. That's why in the Bible you hear about the Israelites all the time, but you don't hear about the indigenous people that lived in the, in the Americas. You don't hear about, you know, um, you know, all the different cultures of the world, the Eskimo, all these different folks that live everywhere else on the planet that just did not exist to them. Mm-hmm. And so they were kind of blown away. They didn't know how to answer that. And I went to some priests with that information. They, they didn't know how to answer that either, other than, well, you're just reading the Bible wrong. Oh, that must be it. So I'm of the I'm of this this sort of thing. Everybody, there's 1.1 billion Muslims in the world. There's 1.2 to 1.4 million Christians in the world. There's a lot less that follow Judaism, which is more of a culture than a religion, but it's you know a lot less that follow Judaism. And then all the different, you know, uh, cultures of the world that, of course, there's Hinduism, which is polytheistic. The polytheistic age of multiple gods lasted 15,000 years, whereas monotheism, what we now believe in, has only existed for a little over 3,000 years. I feel like I need to have you on just to talk about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can go on forever. It's been a long time since I have sat in front of somebody that just... I'm just like, Amber, she, I read your bio. Yeah. You, maybe you want to add Bible scholar. I I don't, I don't, I don't know, but, (laughs) but there's so much that I'm even learning just listening to you. And I just need to have you back on just to talk about that because faith is, is obviously a a big topic for me. And I'm interested in, in everybody's faith journey. Okay. Um, So to learn all of that, and, you know, to, to grow up, uh, I think you said Catholic, right? Yeah. And then to, was it that research, that knowing, that, you know, reading and studying that led to being agnostic? It, it was. It, I, at a young age, I just wanted to pile knowledge on. I, I didn't want to think about my incongruity anymore. Yeah. So what did I do? I dove into books. I read and read and read on a multitude. If you picked out of your head right now, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or paint myself as smarter than anyone else because I am not, just so you know. But we could have, I swear to God, an intelligent conversation on any topic that you randomly pick right this very second, and I will intelligently talk to you about it. And if I don't know about it, I'll just be honest and say, yeah, you caught me. I don't know about that one, you know? And it's because I spent the most of my life trying to, to dampen this, this thing that I was going through. And I try to tell people, if you want to relate to me and you want to relate to my experiences, then relate to the fact that I was a songwriter, relate to the fact that my best work that I ever did was in 1996. And it's now an an exhibit in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., with my name on it. And I have music in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., because I did a project. It was a philanthropic project for the children of Africa, specifically these girls in Ethiopia that would carry water 
dirty water 10 miles in each direction to where they lived so that they had some sort of drinkable water. It wasn't very potable, right? It was is actually kind of disgusting, but that was all they had. And we brought awareness to these people so that we can get all of the nonprofits focused on let's help these people. The, the very least we can do for people is at least give them drinkable water for crying out loud. You don't need to give them big houses and everything else. Just give them something so they can live a life without getting dysentery, you know? That's amazing amazing and that's an example of how you save another's life right but there was an awareness and knowing at four i listened to you a previous podcast you talked about telling the boyfriend the abusive boyfriend that 14 year old um a coming out to him that you know and, and all of that and then later on in life a coming out to your coworkers coming out to parents, coming out to the work, you know, everybody within your community. Can you talk about that coming out a little bit? I've been coming out for the past, my whole life, right? I came out to my mom when I was four. Yeah. And, you know, the, I was always afraid. As I got older, I started to learn about the world and the way the world saw people like me. And it made me incredibly afraid. So, Let's get into, let's really just dive into it. The reason transgender people commit suicide or have suicidal ideation is not because we hate ourselves. That's a narrative that Ben Shapiro and the rest of them will throw at you. It's completely inaccurate, completely inaccurate. The reason we have suicide ideation and, and sometimes carry it out is because we are disenfranchised from our families, our friends, our jobs, our life, everything, our lives are completely torn apart when people find out who we are, because there's this stigma, there's this old, outdated stereotype of what we are, and there needs to be a new learning. Now, a lot of America, believe it or not, the majority of America understands this now, but there's a huge percentage of people that are following us, other I don't know what you call it other than they're following some strange ideology about this where they're calling it like a religion. Like we can somehow convert people. Right. No, you, you're either born transgender or you're not. You're either born straight or you're not. You're born gay or you're not. You know, it's just not, you're born left-handed for crying out loud. We don't seem to have a problem with that, except <laughs> in the 1950s, that was considered a sin. So the nuns used to tie your left hand behind your back and force you to write with your right hand because obviously Jesus Christ sits on the right hand side of God. That was, that was what they used to say, swear to God. My, my dad told me the whole story about him. Oh, wow. Jesus Christ sits on the right hand side of the father. The left hand side is, is, is for the promiscuous, the, the, you know, Satan has control of those powers. And people, by the way, that are left-handed are less intelligent. Well, damn, I'm left-handed. So am I. I'm left-handed. <laughs> See, we're, we're all screwed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I was born screwed, I guess, you know? Yeah. So, so you know, the suicide rate, the, the loss of the job, this, the, the being afraid of society in general, being afraid of the cute boys that I really was, was easily like, you know, I was, I would melt in front of certain you know, TV characters and, and stuff that I fell in love with, just like any other girl would. And so I was hit with what we call a double whammy, I guess you could say. My gender identity 
Mm -hmm. right? It's female, you know, just like your gender identity is female. But here's the odd thing. How many people have ever walked up to you, Tasha, and said, what do you, what do you identify as? Nobody. I don't want that word in the nomenclature anymore. I don't identify as a female. I am a female. That's it. Period. You know, I don't identify as this or that. I am this or that. Say that one more time for the people that didn't hear you. Yeah. I think it's an important aspect too, because you know, people don't come up. If you're cisgender, meaning on the same side of, meaning you're congruent, meaning you are a woman at birth, assigned a woman at birth, I mean a, a female at birth, and you're great with that. Everything's hunky-dory with you, right? That's called cisgender, on the same side of. That's what cis means. Transgender means you're on the opposite side of. You've been assigned something that you're not, right? And what people do is they equate your genitals to who you are. That's just your reproductive organs, silly gooses. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's just a piece of your DNA, the XXXY. Everybody loves to use that argument, XX. Well, you're XX and XY, and when they dig up your bones, you're going to be found to be male. Okay, get over yourself. When I'm dead, I'm not going to give a shit, am I? You know, the, the issue is that's only a piece of what makes us human. There's a million different processes that have to go into making that quote, unquote, perfect baby. You know, so I was afraid of all of that. I was afraid of society. So it took me a long time to start coming out to new people. I came out to a few friends when I was young, most of them girls. I came out to a few guys that I, you know, it's in my book. There's a few guys that I I hung around with that had (laughs) an impact on my life. Let's just say that. And, and, And then, of course, there's the celebrities that are not in the book on purpose. I didn't want to include them into that and cause some sort of stir. But there's one famous person that everybody in America knows that I was was decent friends with that I told that I was this way. And she, that night in the bar, she hugged me and yelled it out loud. And I was like, girl, (laughs) I'm not ready to tell everybody here in Nashville that I'm, you know, that this is what I am. This is a wrong town for me to be, be, you know, doing that. So she was very respectful. And then of course I started saying, okay, I've had enough of this shit. I was getting married over and over again. I was having kids. Mm -hmm. Having kids was hard for someone like me because I had to get inside my head in order to procreate. I know that sounds disingenuous, and it was disingenuous, but at the same time, I wasn't lying either. Mm-hmm. When I married somebody, I told them way ahead of time, this is who I am, mm-hmm. gender dysphoria, I'm transgender, I, I'm, I was born incorrectly, deal with it. Well, are you going to transition? I said, honestly, I don't know how to do that, so I guess not. You know, that was my answer back then because I just didn't know what was going to happen. I had, I said, ew, I'm just an ugly man. There's no way I'm ever going to be able to pull this off because my bone structure changed. I didn't understand all the operations. And then again, I didn't understand all the money that goes into those operations. You know? Right. It was so expensive. All right. So really quick, I, I, I avoided all of that like the plague. until <laughs> I finally said, you know what? I'm going to do this and I'm going to tell the world I was afraid of the world. I'm going to tell them a piece by piece. I'm going to start with my friends in, in, in New York where I grew up and I'm going to tell all of them first and I'm going to call them on the telephone. I'm not going to write some stupid letter like a lot of people do. I think a lot of us lose our friends and family because we don't approach the problem correctly. I hate saying that to other girls or, or, or transgender men, but 
a lot of times we don't really approach it from that empathetic way that we really need to and touch people. We need to really touch them in a way that they understand because they're not going to get it. They're going to think, oh, you're just having a midlife crisis. No, <laughs> I was this way at four years old. That's a pretty goddamn long, you know, like, you know, crisis. So I told my family, I told my friends, and then I said, you know what? I'm just going to tell the whole world. I'm already in the music business. Everybody and their brother that I worked with, I knew all the popular people, all the famous people. They knew me. I wasn't famous myself in the mainstream because I wasn't the headliner, but I was the songwriter. I was the producer. I worked with with people from HBO, the Goodfellas and, and, and the Sopranos. I worked with all those people. I've worked with American Idol um, people. I've worked with, there's just so many different layers to me, you know, and I call it occupational ADD because <laughs> I needed to be busy, 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 busy. And I finally said, screw it. I'm not going to tell it to just a few people. I'm going to tell the whole world and I'm going to try to make a difference. I don't want another child or another person to suffer. I want them to read my book and know they're not alone. And, and there is hope. There is light at the end of the tunnel for us. And we just got to, we got to stay that path. So you just mentioned your book, um, which I'm going to purchase today. Thank you. And I want everybody listening to this podcast to purchase uh, Amber's book. It's so important. Can you please talk about your book, talk about your podcast and anything else that you have going on? Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so humbled. My book is now number two on the bestsellers list. Mm -hmm. I'm just so blown away that I wasn't expecting much from this because I'm a trans woman. And, you know, we have Janet Mock and all the other really huge spokespeople for the trans community that have books. Um, in her book, Redefining Realness, is just so brilliantly written. I love Janet. I'd love to meet her someday because she's, she's just a force to be reckoned with. But my book, Hiding from Myself, My Complicated Rebirth into Womanhood in My Own Skin, mm -hmm. I wrote thinking I'll sell a few books on Amazon. Well, then I was picked up by every bookstore in 37 different countries. So Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target, everywhere that books are sold, I, I was being sold. And then by December, I was number seven, no, I was number 12, and then I was number nine, and then I was number seven, six, and then I was number two. I couldn't get to number one, but it's okay. I'll take number two for my first book. And so it's available anywhere books are sold. It's available on amazon.com. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been endorsed by a whole slew of celebrities out there. Uh, one of which is a, a, just such a dear friend. Colin Mockery uh, is the gentleman that's on a TV show called Whose Line Is It Anyway? They are so funny. They, they're the ones that go up and make up stuff on the top of their heads, you know, Drew Carey or whoever the host is at, the, at, at any given point in time would say, okay, here's the scenario, make something up. And it would just be funny, funny, funny. Uh, he has a transgender daughter. And I actually helped her out from bullies on, on her birthday. And it was such a horrible thing to, to witness, you know, because you had a thousand people saying, God bless you. We love you. And congratulations on your journey and blah, blah, blah. And then you had about 10 
really disgusting people saying some of the most inhuman things I've ever heard say to another human being, even worse than stuff that was said to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh no, this is not happening. And me and a few girls got together and not only reported them to Facebook, but gave them a schooling like they would never you know, walk away from again. It was a good schooling. We weren't, we weren't crazy angry. We were just very logical and very down to earth, you know? We call that advocacy work. <laughs> Thank you. That is, I was about to say that word. It's like somehow yeah. we're like preempting each other. That, that is actually what I was going to say. Some people call it advocacy. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So yeah, that is exactly what it was. And mm-hmm. a few days later, I'm reading People Magazine and holy crap, there's some of my comments and stuff. So he quote. He quoted me in People Magazine for helping his daughter, me and a few other girls. I was just so taken back. And I said, thank you. And he says, no, thank you. Yeah. More people need to stand up for each other. And I said, by the way, Colin, you know, I have a book. I want you to read it. And he said, shut up, send it to me, (laughs) you know, and and it was just so wonderful. And he did. And he wrote me a beautiful uh, passage. And I have, you know, producers and, and directors that that signed off on the book as well and that I think helped believe it or not notoriety of other people sort of helps and I know so many people right and I spent my life doing that you know knowing people reading books lots of books from religious books to medical books medical journals I read the whole DSM if there's a a transgender curious or questioning somebody that maybe they they don't identify yet they're just kind of wondering where do I belong in this and it's a kid or a teenager what's one piece of advice you would say to them right now being that it is a spectrum Mm -hmm. you know questioning you know a lot of people say what's the Q in LGBTQ Mm -hmm. Q actually stands for queer because we took that word back but it also stands for questioning Mm -hmm. and if you're questioning that's okay a lot of people just don't understand what happens when you're young. The world sort of has a way of saying what you're experiencing is not real. So you start to question yourself and it, and don't be afraid of that. And it's okay. It doesn't mean you're not, it doesn't mean you're are either, quite frankly. It just means you're on a journey. We're all on a journey of self-discovery. Yeah. Uh, for parents raising that child today. I would tell them that there's one phrase that should trump everything else. And I hate that that word (laughs) is used that way now because it has the word trump in it. But here it is. Unconditional love, those two words. Unconditional love has to sit at the top of the ladder. You do not put conditions on your children. If you're a parent and you put conditions on your children, all I'm going to say to you, whether I humiliate you or offend you, is shame on you. Because your children are human beings just like you. Do not do what we, in the psychological realm, we call it projection. Parents love to project what they think their children are onto their children, whether it's what occupation they should do. Well, I ran this business my whole life. And when I'm done, I'm going to turn it over to you and you're going to do it as if the kid wants to do that. Maybe they want to do something else. Same thing happens with this. So if they come to you with that, take it seriously, because the reason they're telling you mommy and daddy 
It's because they love you so much and they don't want to lose you. You are important to that person, that little child or that teenage child, right? Or that adult. They're coming to you finally after years of anguish. This is not something new. They don't tell you the day they find out. They've been thinking about this their entire life. And they didn't know how to approach it with you. But they want it to because you mean something incredible to them. You're their mom. You're their dad. And when you do not affirm who they are for something that's very real, and you, you take some sort of ideology, whether it's religious, political, or otherwise instead, then I, I really, really encourage you to go speak to a neurologist, an endocrinologist, a, a GP, anyone that, that can actually explain the background of this and why this person is going through it. Attend one, two, a hundred different psychology, psych, you know, therapist sessions with your child. Show them that you care, that you're willing to learn and listen to the psychologist. It's not an agenda. The only agenda transgender people have is one of, of equality. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So fun questions. When you want to dance or you just want to move your body, what kind of music do you listen to? Oh, God, girl. Um, I'm, a, I'm a girl of the 80s, but something that really gets me because I think it's because I like looking at him. And by the way, I've had dinner with him before. Justin Timberlake. Hold up a minute. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, was... drop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I met him in Nashville and my God, is he just, oh, he's just so wonderful. And yeah. I was still running around. We have a term in, in the trans community, boy mode, mm -hmm. right? I was still running around in boy mode because I lived in Nashville and I was like, there's no freaking way I'm going to you know, be able to do what I need to do without getting beat up or something. But when we ate together and, and got to meet each other, I, I got to learn some things about him that I honestly didn't know. I didn't know he was from Memphis. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't, there's a lot of things I just didn't know. I mean, I was in the music business. I didn't, I knew a lot of people, but I didn't really know a lot about those people. Mm -hmm. So he was wonderful. So I like Justin Timberlake's music. Um, I like 80s music, but, you know, I like everything. I like Katy Perry. Uh -huh. I'll, I'll dance to her music. I'll dance to one of my favorite of all time is Anita Baker. I love, oh, Anita. love Anita Baker. Oh, my God. Aretha Franklin. Love her. Um, you know, there's just so many different. I could go on and on and on. Yeah. And, and my favorite of all time, Shaka Khan. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I just... You know, everything about her was just so, I, I just loved it. I grew up with her. And so, you know, we're all, we're all sort of attached to when we grew up and that's the music I love. But, you know, being in the business, I had to like transform with it. So mm -hmm. you know, I, I embrace the new artists as well. Yeah. Who or what makes you laugh? Ooh, who or what makes me laugh? Um, Republicans make me laugh. No, I don't want to go there. Um, <laughs> they make me. Laugh. Um, let's see. Let's be. Let's be completely serious. The people that make me laugh isn't that a weird dichotomy of words to use? Let's be serious when I talk about who's going to make me laugh. <laughs> I do like stand-up comics a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. right? Or what inspires you? Being inspired is is sort of a tricky question for me because I have different levels of inspiration. Mm -hmm. And 
from an inspirational standpoint, I now look to as 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 a transgender elder first and foremost. Um, there's there's people in the community that I think do such a fabulous job with their messaging, their reach, and how they help people. Mm-hmm. That I just think what they're doing in their platforms that they stand upon, they're using very responsibly, and I like that. And and I mentioned one of them, Janet Mock. I mm-hmm. think she is a wonderful influence to the community. And, and of course she was the writer and producer for Pose on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as other types of influence, I would have to say somebody that passed away a few years ago, who was the person that brought me into the music business in the first place, who used to sit on the board of, of directors as the vice president of the Grammy Awards, uh, Anne Ruckard. Mm, we spoke about her in another podcast. Yes. She's just such, she has an indelible mark on my heart forever and ever and ever. And um, I'll never forget her. And and if you speak to anybody in the business that has had interaction with her, we all say the same thing about her. We all have our own individual stories we have with this woman. And she was just a mover and shaker. And she she knew how to speak to you on a level that surpassed all the I'm just going to say all the bullshit of the music industry, because there's a lot of it there. Yeah. People don't see it from the outside. And she knew how to get past all that and really have a human conversation with you. Those are the people I appreciate, you know. Um, For anybody listening and they want to follow you, they want to find you on social media, your website. Can you please put that out there? Okay, so hopefully you'll have some words on the screen because some of them are kind of long. Uh, my name is Amber Rose Washington. If any of you are wondering where Amber came from, it's my middle name. I phonetically slowed it down. If you phonetically slow down the word Ambrose and you say Amber Rose, Amber Rose, Amber Rose, Amber Rose, it be, that's what it becomes. So I didn't really come up with some fictitious name. I actually used my middle name as my real name. Uh, my mother's middle name was Rose as well, by the way. But I have AmberRoseWashington.com, which has a whole lot of information about me. And then I have my Facebook, which is Facebook.com forward slash Hiding From Myself, A-R Washington. It's all one word. Hiding From Myself, A-R Washington. Go ahead and like that page if you like. And... Uh, I will be coming out with a series coming out soon. If any of you have ever watched Dateline NBC or a similar show, I'm coming out with a podcast that is not interview-based, but more investigative journalism. And it's going to be storytelling about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And the podcast is called The Journey Unscripted. And it comes out in mid-April. And if any of you have saw the movie The 51st Dates, I have an individual, just to give an example of where we're going with this show, that actually, even though the the diagnosis in the show is fictitious, there's actually a real diagnosis to this sort of condition. And there's this gentleman that loses, um, a re- has a reset of the brain every week, at least once a week. And his wife, it's a story of unconditional love, how this wife has stood by him and helped him through this through all of the lost memories, getting him back to square one every week, sort of like what happened in a movie. And I just think it's a beautiful thing. So 
my stories are going to be about ordinary people doing extraordinary things, sort of on the premise of do something good for somebody. That's my message. All right, Amber, thank you so, so very much um, for being on my podcast. Like I said before, I feel so honored. And Oh, the pleasure's all mine. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I just love the whole thing. Um, So everybody, uh, go to her website, um, purchase her book, and be on the lookout for her podcast because it's going to be amazing because she's amazing. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for the compliments. Yeah, we need to talk again. There's a lot of stuff we could talk about. I mean, especially when it comes to religion. I, I can I don't bash religion and I don't I don't put it on a pedestal either. because um, I, I go from everything from from being agnostic to being very spiritual to dealing with the ethereal, you know, um, and, and dealing with Wicca. Um, I've, I've had a lot of different experiences in my life with religion, so it would be a fun conversation at best. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me this week on When We Speak. Please make sure you visit the website at TashaHunterAuthor.com. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, I would appreciate leaving a rating. It will help others find the show more easily and hopefully be a benefit to them as well.